Hi everyone, I hope you're having a lovely weekend inside and not getting pissed in Brockwell Park. Um, this is just a, a quick sort of, well, quick advertisement. I hate to use the word advertisement because it's for a good cause, but for the for the mental health and suicide prevention charity Calm, they uh, operate 365 days a year between the hours of 5 p.m. and midnight. They're a fantastic charity who who have services to help people who are really struggling with their mental health. As you can imagine, during these times, uh, their services are in more demand than ever. I think their calls are up to 37% more than normal. Um, which is which is totally understandable, but as they can't really do fundraising activities outside the home, obviously they've lost a large part of the donations that they would normally uh, be getting during this time. So this is just a quick shout out to them. If you have any spare money, you feel like you could donate, it would be much appreciated. You can go to www.thecalmzone.net uh, and eight pounds could potentially fund one life-saving call. So it's really important, guys. If you check out their services and if you can spare any money, please, please do so. Now over to this episode. It's a really, really, um, yeah, really happy with this episode. Ollie and I, we sat down with a good friend of ours, John Turpy, who is a uh, a doctor for the NHS. And, and, and in this episode, we discuss all things sort of self-isolation, all things coronavirus uh, from a doctor's perspective. And there's a really nice bit in here where... Um, John tells us just how much all of this clapping and appreciation for the NHS goes. So really nice to hear that. And uh, yeah, hope you enjoy the episode. As ever, please like, share and subscribe. Um, We're definitely going to be releasing episodes every week now. Every Sunday, we will be giving you a, a new episode. So we'll do our part. If you could just help us where you can, that'd be great. Cheers, guys. This is The Dog Days with Ollie Scott, Junior L. Style and Ian McKenzie. Hello, hello. John Turpy, how the hell are you doing, brother? I'm doing very well, thank you. Doing very well. Happy to be with you guys this morning. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us, mate. Yeah. And uh, there's not, not much of an introduction there. I've, um, I've just sort of dived straight in without even explaining who you are. But you are, to <laughs> me, one of my best friends. Um, but to the rest of the world, uh, a hero. Um, and I'm working for the NHS as a, as a doctor. Um, mate, thank you for taking the time out this morning to join us. Um, Ian and I, whilst we're sort of picking out belly button fluff and that sort of stuff at home, um, I guess are just brutally curious and wondering what on earth and how on earth you must be feeling right now. I want to start there. How are you feeling? Um, it's surreal. Like, there's a lot of people that have asked me those questions. Um, and a lot of, you know, I've received a lot of really lovely uh, messages from people at the moment. And work has definitely changed. <clears throat> Uh, and I'm very aware that obviously this whole coronavirus thing is going on, but ultimately it, a lot of it just feels like just going in, doing what I do every day, um, and kind of just turning up. And I don't really feel that much like a, you know, people are saying, oh, you're a hero. What you're doing is amazing. Um, and I don't think the reality of that has really set in. Um, yeah. Why is that? Do you, I mean, what, what has changed for you right now? Um, the whole hospital has changed. Um, so the layout of the hospital has changed. The way that we're dealing with the inflow of patients has completely changed. Um, you know, we're splitting into sort of COVID, non-COVID sides of the hospital. Um, so it's re- it's changed drastically from that perspective. Um, what does that mean? So COVID you know, and non-COVID, how does that, is, is it literally shut off so you can't access the other, the other side? Yeah, 
so um, when when things started to really ramp up and it became clear that, you know, we couldn't. So normally when someone comes into hospital and they have um, something infectious going on, then we would try and put them in a side room to isolate them so other people don't catch those infective things. So that also includes things like, you know, when you get diarrhea and vomiting, you know, that's quite infectious. So we don't want everyone to get that. And, you know, you do see bouts of that spread through the hospital sometimes. Mm. So we would put those people in a side room normally, and that's the kind of infectious procedure protocol. But it became quite apparent quite quickly that we did not have enough side rooms in the hospital um, to to isolate all these people that essentially had coronavirus. So then something had to change, and we then started to cohort patients uh, into a whole area where everyone, you know, potentially had coronavirus, um, and then we had to take people that you know, didn't have a fever, didn't have a cough, didn't have any infectious symptoms and deal with them separately. So we had to completely, well, I say we, you know, the uh, the hospital powers that be, they had to completely divide the hospital kind of into two in terms of how things are coming in. Um, so we have like a red and a green side. Wow. I mean, that sounds mental. I mean, so this, this will be going out on April the 4th, right? So we are, I think by that point, we'll be nearly in two weeks into isolation. When when did yeah. you realise this was... Uh, we're using these words, like these glamorous... When I say glamorous, these kind of new words that I've never used before in my lifetime, like an epidemic. Um, yeah. Uh, furlough is a new word that I'm using. Yeah, but like, furlough. Well, <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Furlough. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't like it, unfortunately, but it means that you know, nothing's happening in my business, so I have to use Are it. Are you but, on the old furlough, <clears> brother? I don't, I thought, unfortunately, because I'm not self-employed and I own a limited company, I just fall in between the two gaps. So I just, um, oh, no. I'm on pause, life You're is on pause. Fell over. It, it could be a lot worse for me. But when... <laughs> you fell over. <laughs> what? Oh, what? I fell over? Fell over. Christ. I've fallen over and, and fallen onto no money at all. I'm just, I'm just skinned. What are these words? Yeah. <laughs> oi, oi. Um, hello, Jess. So I, I guess I wanted to go back to... Because, okay, I'll be really honest, I was like a lot of the public, I reckon, and, you know, three weeks ago and everyone was going, oh, it's a pandemic. We go, no, it's not. It's only a pandemic in China. It's not. And it's only a pandemic in Italy. And then it got closer and closer and closer. I didn't really know what a pandemic really meant in terms of a a hospital um, or or from a hospital's perspective. But what happened uh, that made it go from, this is kind of bad to shit, let's let's do something? Um, So... Well, when I first realised that, you know, things were, this is this could be serious, uh, was actually pretty early on. I remember, so I was on nights in December, and nights are an interesting experience for any night shift workers out there that are listening, you know, everyone can relate to this, that it's a very lonely time, you look at your phone, no one's awake, so no one's on WhatsApp. You know, your phone doesn't really update in the same way that it does in the day. So you're kind of just sat scrolling on BBC News a lot, um, looking for any kind of like digital stimulus. And um, I remember looking at like Wuhan and China and looking at the cases there. And I remember there was like we were all talking about it on this night shift. And we got to a point in the cases where it went from sort of like, I was like, oh, there's 45 new cases. And everyone's like, oh, look at this crazy new disease. But actually it got to a point where they were sort of, oh, there's now 2,000 cases. There's now 6,000 cases. And that's when I was like, oh, shit. Like this, you know, this could, this could, this, this has, this has legs, basically. 
Um, yeah, go on. Sorry, I thought you'd finish your point. I've been under strict uh, guidelines <clears throat> from Ollie not to interrupt when people make an point, but I thought you'd finish then. So that's it's it's no, no, it's no, 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 that's fine. Yeah, so basically, yeah, realized um, when things in China started to get a bit crazy, and then Wuhan got locked down, um, and that was a pretty sizable measure from China, you know. There's a, a, a really large population there. There's about 10, 10 million people. So that's like trying to lock down the city of London. I mean, different infrastructure and stuff like that. When you think about the size of what you're trying to do, that was something that we hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started to realize that this could, be, this could be a bit of a problem internationally. So that was in December. Um, and then when I realized things were going to get bad here... Um, was uh, trying to think there was a point where we'd started to see cases and we were testing people coming back from Italy we were testing people coming back from of like China mm. Singapore I think even before Italy but then when we started to get transmission of people in the UK so when there was the first case where someone had coronavirus but they hadn't been to Italy they hadn't been anywhere that's when I realized I was like oh, okay this this could this could really could blow up and what did you think then were you like was there anything did doctors kind of all get together and go right okay here's the, here's the game plan or is there a little bit of panic that happens within the NHS as well there's not panic per se um then there is definitely a, a structured approach and a game plan as to what they're doing um but it, you know, the word unprecedented has been banded around a lot, along with furlough and the other words. But this truly is unprecedented uh, in terms of the size of this this kind of thing um, that w- in our lifetimes, in in the in the working lifetime of most people mm. um, in the NHS. So um, there was a little bit of like, well, we we have this virus, we don't know much about it, we don't know how it how it the disease trajectory we don't know how to treat it we don't know exactly how it you know we don't know a lot about it um so yeah there was a bit of panic yeah there was a bit of panic as a doctor and ollie uh you should have known to let me go because i've been holding this in for a while as a as a doctor um do you are you prepared for this in your studies Have, have you studied like a chapter on pandemics so do you have any education as to how to sort of prepare and how these things go um, we have, well, each medical school curriculum is slightly different. So the way that they teach you is slightly different. Uh, but there are kind of uh, overall things that everyone has to achieve to kind of standardize what it means to be a doctor. But we, where I studied, um, we did uh, public health um, so and global health. We did modules on both of those. And most, well, I think pretty much all medical students will do the same. So we do have an understand, like it's kind of do have an understanding of how uh, health is around the world, how these diseases impact uh, other countries. So you do kind of learn about things like um, Ebola, malaria, uh, all these diseases that kind of have spread like that before. Um, so yeah, yeah, you do have a little bit of training. Yeah. How does it feel now? So so okay. Bring us now, we're two weeks into it. I think everybody that's listening to this is going to be hoping to have some sort of glimmer of hope. And we'll come on to, I guess, reasons to be cheerful towards the end. But I guess yeah, I want to sure. kind of contextualise, because 
right now, and I'll just speak on behalf of the people I'm living with, you know, we're kind of getting used to living at home, it's becoming a bit more normal. Um, the There's this kind of hope that this will be kind of over in about two weeks. And I, and I think everyone's kind of going, oh, I reckon, you know, summer might happen. To be honest, the British public, let's be honest, want to be in a pub by July. And I think the question Mate, on everybody's too. lips... Me too, yeah. <laughs> is... is what can you and I, I'm not trying to make you make a prediction because I know this is, as you said, unprecedented, a, a word that I'm learning the meaning of. But what how, how can this slow down? Have we got anything to look at? You know, is anything extractable from China that we can see that, that you know, if we implement them, we'll be on a similar timeline? Could we speed things mm. up? Could be better their timeline? Mm. Is there, I mean, there, there are three questions there, and, but I guess. And, and also to make it four questions, is this, are you <laughs> seeing that this self isolation is is working? Are we doing it well? Is 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 there a slowdown in, in rates? What, what's currently happening? But be honest as well, don't just manufacture. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. So I think it's worth remembering that like I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not an infectious diseases consultant. You're supposed I'm not, to be. You know, I'm not. That's why we got you on. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm an A&E doctor, so I can just sort of give in from what I see there. Like I obviously have a vested interest in what's going on with coronavirus at the moment because it impacts my life quite a lot. So I do keep up to date with the figures, what's going on and what the advice is. <clears throat> Um, and it, obviously, this is just my opinion. This isn't the opinion mm. of the NHS or any hospitals. But um, thanks for the disclaimer. It's good to get that out of the way. Yeah, what does John yeah, Turby uh, think? <laughs> so, what do I think? Um, well, will it be over in two weeks? I mean, the thing is, <laughs> if you'd have asked me a month ago, um, would we be where we are now? I would have said, oh, "No, nah, no way." Um, you know before Italy, before before everything, when it was just this like few thousand cases in China, did I ever think that we would have, you know, the US stopping all flights from Europe? Did I think that, you know, countries would go into complete lockdown, you know, impose some of the most stringent kind of uh, control of the, the general population that we've ever seen? Definitely, definitely not. So how do I think things are going to go in the next couple of weeks? It is all a bit hard to predict. Um, but that being said, uh, if we do look at China and what's happened there, they definitely had like this exponential growth phase, this plateau phase, and then they're kind of tailing off and they're starting to reduce the restrictions over there. Um, I think it's very hard to compare countries. Um, so it's hard to say this is what happened in China. We're gonna, this is gonna happen to us, or we're, you know, I've heard this phrase a lot, like we're two weeks behind Italy. You know, we're gonna be Italy in two weeks, and I think that's really difficult to compare because each country has a completely different uh, population. They have a different health burden. So Italy is one of the oldest, has one of the oldest populations in Europe. Um, so that you know they've had a really high death rate that could be one of the reasons um, and each country has different responses what I think we were quite slow to do was to impose really strict measures on lockdown and um, I think that's something that has definitely been the consensus across the world that if you can stop people going out if you can stop people spreading this disease then you can stop uh, you can stop the transmission of it um, and that <clears throat> this term of like flattening the curve, um, you, if you have everyone getting sick all at once, then you kind of get the get the 
the the pandemic over with sort of thing and you develop an immunity and that's all great and you can kind of limit the time but if you do that then the number of people that so if we say we didn't do anything we let everyone Mm. just roam free in the pubs and uh you know being lazy susans um (laughs) (laughs) yeah then uh, then we would have a massive explosion of coronavirus and it would be a much shorter, probably a much shorter uh, time that we'd be doing this for. But the numbers of people that would be infected all at once would be huge. And this term of overwhelming the NHS, overwhelming the healthcare system, that's something you have to be really careful with, with this, this condition, because there are people that will need ventilators. There are people that are going to need intensive care. We have a limited number of intensive care beds. We have a limited number of ventilators. Yes, they are trying to get more of those. Yes, they're making this NHS Nightingale, which is increasing intensive care capacity. But you can only grow the NHS so large, and you have to try and bring the number of people being infected all at once, being uh, those people that will need intensive care beds. You have to try and bring that down. And that's what that means to try and uh, flatten the curve or trying to to make that peak last longer but never get quite as high so we don't overwhelm the NHS but we kind of sustain its maximal capacity over a longer period of time can I, that's really helpful yeah can I ask when you first um, heard <clears throat> when when our Prime Minister first said that we were going to try and adopt herd immunity what was the sort of reaction from your position and the NHS did, did you realise the implications that would have did you already know internally that that would, so to speak, potentially overwhelm the NHS? Um, the, there's, I think, my personal reaction, I obviously can't really say what the NHS oh, thought, yeah. but my personal reaction was, um, it's a good and a bad thing, because if you put everyone on lockdown and you kind of stem the control of this disease uh, really, really, really strictly and you say you stop everyone going out, everyone that has coronavirus or most people that have coronavirus they go through the disease process. Then we let everyone out, you know, uh, SW4 festival happens and, you know, everyone's happy. God knows, and that, that can't happen that again. <laughs> coronavirus or no coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the few people that then still have coronavirus can go out and no one has immunity and then we have another second wave of everything uh, because no one has immunity. So we do need to develop herd immunity. That's how that's how we control things like this. And this is, so to draw a comparison, this is how we deal with flu, influenza. But the thing with flu is we have a vaccine and this is why people should get vaccines every year to protect the vulnerable. Um, so if people get flu vaccines, then there's a certain amount of people that should be immune to the strain of flu going around. If these people are immune, then flu can't spread like wildfire, like we're seeing with coronavirus, you know, that kind of wildfire spread of thousands of new cases a day. Um, It doesn't happen because we create a kind of barrier where flu can't infect everyone around you. It'd be like if you're at the pub and someone on your table is unwell, but you've vaccinated the next three tables around, the whole pub isn't going to get it because the flu can't travel, say, five tables down Mm. immediately. So herd immunity is definitely the way that, you know, we can offer protection against viral infections like influenza and like coronavirus. So, you know, when the government say we want to 
get herd immunity, that's definitely the right thing to do. It's just trying to balance that with not overwhelming the NHS. And they did eventually say, okay, well, you know, we need to lock everyone down because this the spread of this is nuts. All we need to do is really kind of prolong this until the numbers drop down enough and enough people have been infected or we get a vaccine. Um, and, you know, pretty much immediately after the virus got shared by people, vaccine work started. So I just thought, I just want to stay on this kind of the time frame because I think, and everyone is, is obsessed about the time frame. I mean, there are professionals that know way more than we yeah. do that are making clear predictions. <laughs> but like I heard someone say yesterday, and this is mental, that they were, you know, there's someone that knows somebody that's working at the Nightingale Hospital and they think that we're going to be in lockdown until the end of January next year. It, like, is that even a possibility? Because so many industries are going to be so negatively affected and also people are going to go insane if they have to go another yeah, nearly yeah. nine months. I mean, the divorce rate is going to go through the roof, eh? But also, but also I do think that it's going to be, you know, more are more accidents happening because more people are at home and more fires starting because there's more use of electronic, you know. There must be impacts that happen by making everybody stay at home that increase people coming into hospitals or whatever. When, when, yeah. what my question is basically <clears throat> that's not your question is it about about fires at home is it your question no, 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 no. <laughs> no it's not a fireman but like but my question was like how, how do you know when the numbers start dropping off and how do you know that's not a daily thing or is it the, do you take it over the course of a week how do we start to know when the numbers start dying so we can start to get out again um, so the whole the whole response has been um managed by Public Health England. Uh, mm. So they, they look after the kind of the health of the nation. So initially when someone would come in and we had, to, you know, we were concerned about them having coronavirus, we'd do this swab, we'd fill out this form and then it would be sent to Public Health England so they could kind of track everything. So they're, they're, the, they're the boys that are kind of controlling the response to this. Mm. Um, with regards to like, will we be in lockdown into January? I mean, it is a little bit of guesswork, um, but I think... You know that that's a long time to be in lockdown, and it's a long time to have social distancing measures. Um, I think you know it is worth remembering that we didn't go straight into lockdown. You know, we tried to. It was mm, it was gradual. a gradual process in, and I imagine it will be a gradual process out as well. Um, uh, as long as people you know do adhere to what the government is saying, then hopefully we can you know as long as it's not like okay guys you know you can go to the shops a bit more often you can start you know start to open public spaces again and then everyone's in the pub like you know crammed Mm. to the rafters like you know england world cup sort of time (laughs) um then you know then i think that should shorten it uh yeah can i ask about the actual um the illness itself and and there's been so many i mean when it first started it was it was uh you know it's only going to hurt the elderly people which is mm. quite an insulting statement anyway and then it's going to help hurt people with underlying health conditions is that still what's happening what have you seen in terms of patients and i know you can't speak about individual cases but yeah yeah um yeah definitely uh there are things that so when we started to get data from China, Italy, other countries, you can say, okay, these are the people that have coronavirus. And then you start to do some statistics and say, okay, well, what were their comorbidities? And so everyone that had 
say, diabetes or high blood pressure, they were more likely to die when they had coronavirus. So, um, yes, initially it was just the kind of, they thought, oh, it's going to be the elderly. And yes, uh, age is an overwhelming kind of factor. The people that, you know, are dying are majority elderly with underlying health conditions. That being said, um, it's a bit of a bell curve. Uh, so you do see, there. you know, I think we all saw the news the other day that there was a 13-year-old with no underlying health conditions that died from coronavirus. But what I would reiterate uh, is that the vast, vast majority of people don't even need to come to hospital. They just go home, they self-isolate, and they get better from this disease as they would you know, like a cold or a flu, there are people that do need to go to hospital and that is a small subset of the infections. And then there are an even smaller subset that need intensive care. And then there's a smaller subset of those that will die from the disease. It's just that the infection rate is massive and that those numbers are quite high, especially in places like Italy. They've got kind of seven, eight, nine hundred deaths a day, which is a lot. Like, that is a lot. But um, yeah, it's it does seem to be... Uh, the elderly, which is why we've done this kind of like shielding of uh, the elderly. They shouldn't have gone out. Well, they shouldn't be going out for kind of three months. And that's a big ask, but that's to kind of try and protect them. Mm. Um, so anyone who's got a load of health conditions that are more likely to suffer really adverse effects from the virus have been asked to stay at home. Um, there are obviously slightly younger people dying. Um, yeah. Is it what about because there's this theory that everyone thinks um, they've had it? I mean, do you literally speak to everybody? They've gone, yeah, no, I had a cough about two weeks ago. I reckon that was it. Can you have it in different strains? Is there like, yeah, you know, on, on that, yeah, sorry, I want to add to that question. I, I, yeah, can you have it in different strains? But also, I was interested about the infection with strains. Say, for example, this is quite a technical <laughs> question, but say Ollie did have it, say, two weeks ago when he was Lazy Susan and it was a very <laughs> horrific strain. If he was to pass it on yeah. to someone, is he passing on, like, how, how does your body absorb um, it from someone else? Do you get the same strain as the person who passed it on, or is it just like a case-by-case -case basis? Um, yeah, so uh, are there different strains? Um, I think to know that, you'd have to, uh, you have to map all of the, like, so say you swab them, you look at the virus, is this strain the same as the others? And I honestly, I don't know the answer to that question, how many different strains there are of this virus. I think that as far as I'm aware, there's only one. There's likely to be slightly different mutations of it. Um, the presentation of people is very different. So not everyone is coming in with a cough. Not everyone has got these this cough fever uh, kind of picture. Some people just have like real shortness of breath. Um, so it, it is difficult to say like, oh, you know, loads of people are, I think I had coronavirus. Um, and I think that's really difficult to say whether they have or haven't because it's not, it's not, it's not really bang stereotypical, um, mm. with every person looking exactly the same. Um, do you get the same version that you, uh, that you got off your mate? Yes, uh, I think so. Um, so if someone gives you a cold, you get the same cold as them. Um, but then it can mutate 
and you can pass on something slightly different um, from what you know to someone oh, else. Okay. I heard um, from a theory that came just from the bedroom next door from uh, my friend Harry Quinn that apparently it's the amount of the virus that you get. So, like, is this, a, is this a genuine yeah, theory? Yeah, I've so heard like, this. Yeah. Have you actually heard this as well? Are you taking the piss? Hey. Mm. No, no, no. I've heard oh, this. I've heard this. Um, yeah. So I, like, I have heard that that uh, the the your it's called the viral load. So like how much virus that you essentially inhale, um, kind of can predict how unwell you get. I don't know well. how true that is, um, but that's definitely something I've heard, and uh, it's definitely something that's kind of we have these procedures in hospital called aerosol generating procedures. Mm. So um, when you would expel a lot of virus everywhere, Mm. um, so um, intubating someone, so putting a tube down into their lungs and then sort of breathing for them and attaching them to a ventilator, that's considered aerosol generating. So whenever these procedures are going on, they're really, really super, like, hot on uh ppe make so if that happens in our resuscitation room then we get like the whole resus room gets kind of locked down no one should go in or out unless absolutely essential for the next hour until the air is completely cycled through oh, wow. um so and i i i think that is actually because um if you're doing an aerosol generating procedure you have a much higher risk of you know getting it and then you have a much higher risk of uh, taking in a much higher viral load than you would normally. Okay. I want to ask you a quick question, and it's much more about if you were to... We always have a question that we ask, which is if... You know, because a lot of the stuff we do is based on learnings from hardships and that kind of stuff, and it's a bit... It's not as relevant right now because I think we're only in the eye of the storm of what's going on. So the question yeah. that I was going to ask you is much more about if you had a megaphone, not what would you say to a group of 21-year-olds, but what would you say to the general public today on the 4th I imagine of April a day after my birthday what would you say if you had all of them in a room from 80 down to one years old um and you've got a megaphone in your hand what would you say to the general public right now oh um I think besides the obvious kind of like health messages with my doctor hat on of you know stick with the the government guidelines and stuff that one of the thing, obviously, this is a horrendous disease, and you know people are dying, and it is is tragic. But have you seen the film Hidden Beauty with Will Smith? No. Um, it's about something really tragic that happens to him, but then there's all this hidden beauty that goes on around. And I think one of the things that's really worth remembering at this moment, and kind of trying to look at a positive. Uh, spin on everything that's happened and not detracting from the tragedy that's there but you know the amount of uh, support that we've had from the general public restaurants feeding the NHS you know this these are these acts of absolute kindness and bringing everyone together and um, making people realise what's important to them and how much we, we value being able to just go out and be in nature and be in the park you know, there's a lot of lessons that um, we should take from this that are maybe about our kind of moral and social fabric. And I think it's important not to lose sight of those and that actually that there are some 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 beneficial things that have come from this as well. Can I, can I ask, how, how does it, uh, from seeing the clapping um, 
thing and seeing the support the NHS, NHS have got. How have you seen your fellow colleagues and yourself um, take that? Has it been something that you guys appreciate? Oh, completely. Um, I think the clapping thing particularly was so emotional. Um, I was I made it back home and went out into the street because I honestly thought it would be like a few people just giving it a little, you know, half-assed clap. And I went, like I heard this commotion outside and there was people banging on pots and pans. You know, everyone was going absolutely mental. And uh, I went outside and I had goosebumps and it really, it really made me feel like, wow, actually, you know what, like this is, this is great that, uh, that we're all in this together, that everyone has everyone's back. And um, it, I think it's been amazing to see the solidarity of the country. Um, and it's, you know, uh, people are saying like drawing comparisons to World War Two, but you know, everyone's helping everyone else and everyone's trying to really sort of get there for everyone. Um, mm-hmm. So the clapping definitely made me feel like we're kind of this kind of collectivity uh, of us being all together. And all my colleagues as well, everyone was completely touched. And there's a really lovely video that was shared on our WhatsApp group. And um, it was a, a Canadian doctor who'd been over here. Um, and she's she's working in A&E with me. And she was so overwhelmed that she, you know, she started crying when she saw, you know, everyone clapping. Um, so that has made a huge difference. It's a huge morale boost how everyone's been so kind. You know, loads of companies donating food. It makes you feel like, actually, this isn't so bad. This isn't so bad that you're working in, in, in these, not in these conditions, but that you have a real chance, you're probably a higher chance than anyone else at the moment of catching this virus. Yes, they're young people. And, you know, there's older consultants there as well that, you know, they must get worried when they see you know, people their age uh, being very, very unwell from this and they have a higher chance of catching this. But these acts of support that make you feel like actually we're all in this together, they're massively important. And so I'd like to say thank you to anyone that went out and clapped, to any business that sort of donated anything towards uh, key workers. You know, massively thank you because it, it, it's keeping morale high and it's it's making it, everything a lot easier during this time. So thank wow. you. That's yeah, a lovely, you. lovely way to end, isn't it, Ollie? I would say so. I just want to let, end on a, on a positive note as well. So I want to, I, I kind of asked you um, to, have, to have a think about this. And if you didn't, don't worry. But I wanted to kind of um, get any trends that you've overheard in the NHS recently, or if there's anything that you picked up on that is just like a classic thing that's being said over and over again. And if not, then just feel free to give us some reasons to be cheerful about the next three months. Trends, overheard trends. Mm. See, so when you asked me about this, I didn't. I, I, I misunderstood what you were asking me. What did I you thought think you I said, "Have you got?" I thought you were asking me, "Have you got any like funny overheard in A and E kind of?" Oh yeah, no, like, that's what I mean. <laughs> right. Okay. Nothing. I say I've not really got anything related to coronavirus. Like everyone's like, "Oh yeah, Corona, blah blah." blah. Right. Um, he wants a. I mean, he wants a butternut squash anecdote, but. <laughs> yeah, but not a squash anecdote. Okay, fine. Uh, well, it. I mean, I was I, I was sat on the I was sat at the desk the other day, and you know, like when there's sort of elderly people a little bit cognitively impaired, like and they're a bit deaf, you have to kind of be a bit loud with them. So I just sat chatting and typing away, doing my notes, and I just hear like one of the other doctors having a conversation with this patient. He's like, 
sir, if you leave, you have to remember that your wedding ring is still in your rectum. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I wanted. That is what I can absolutely... Yeah, you can come on. You must be able to get that in the final cut because in all of this well, madness, and it's like what you were saying, John. I can give you a, I can give you a, a, a lesser, a lesser one if you want for the final cut. Oh, we can't take I, that. I'm happy with that one, mate. I'm, I'm happy with that one. <laughs> fine, fine. Yeah, fine. fine with me. I think it's important to you know. I know it's this is a terrible and tragic situation, but it's good to find the um, sometimes the fun in this situation. That's but also remember that for every coronavirus, you are dealing with an 80 year old man's finger in his ass at the same time. So it is. It's. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life, life, life still goes on, mate. Yeah, life still goes on. People do some. <laughs> There's definitely been worse things found up Ollie's ass. That is for sure. <laughs> I think you jumped finger I, once. I, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, mate. I, I would shudder to think, mate, if you came in and we did an X-ray of your abdomen, it'd be like Mary Poppins handbag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why have you got a Bible in there? Uh, 2009 was a weird year. I believe in God. I won't even go there. Um, well, mate, that, thank you so much for giving us the time this morning. Um, no worries. Ian, well done no for worries. waking up again. And, and unlike the episode of your brother, I think this will make the actual uh, the cut. <laughs> I didn't even watch the one with Ali. I was like, what has he got to talk about? Oh. <laughs> oh, we should get them on here. We should get them on here to battle it out. Cool. Um, well, yeah. mate, look, good luck. That's um, brilliant. We will, uh, we'll let you know when this is ready to go up. And uh, happy no 4th worries. April. Thank you and, very much, And guys. well thank done you. again, mate. You're doing a brilliant job. Go and get a half-price prep. Cheers, boys. <laughs> Cheers. They're all closed now. So, yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Bye, bye, man. See you, bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Don't forget to follow us on our socials, at The Dog Days Pod. Leave us a comment, let us know what you think, and we'll see you next week. It's not a-